I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 8th, 2013. Coming up, do medical marijuana laws really reduce traffic fatalities? Fewer alcohol-related traffic fatalities because alcohol consumption has been affected by an increase in marijuana. And thin versus fat, a new study says that being a little heavier may mean you live longer. Or does it? We're talking about BMI as a potential marker for obesity. It's a very poor marker. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Diabetes can lead to dangerously high blood sugars and in perplexing ways. Diabetics can sometimes eat dinner, sleep all night, and in the morning find their fasting blood sugars are much higher than when they went to bed. This happens because a diabetic's liver sometimes makes sugar all night by melting muscles into a sugar known as glucose. One of the most commonly used drugs to counteract this is derived from a cousin of the lilac. The drug is metformin, and no one has known for sure how it works. Now a new study offers new answers. According to University of Pennsylvania researcher Morris Beerbaum, metformin blocks a hormone that signals the liver to make sugar by melting muscle. There is this chemical which causes the liver to make more blood glucose. We know it goes up in fasting in normal people, but it's much too high all the time in diabetes. Maybe metformin working specifically to block the actions of this other chemical, this other hormone I mentioned earlier, glucagon. Birnbaum says that by blocking glucagon, metformin lowers morning blood sugars. He adds that if someone figures out how to eat and exercise in ways that help glucagon and blood sugar settle down without drugs, that's even better. It may come as no surprise to you, but a new analysis published last week in the journal Nature found that fast action by politicians is the single most important factor in limiting global warming. Politicians, not the least of them in Washington, have argued for more research to improve the scientific certainty regarding climate change before they agree to take action. But according to the new study, the cost of such political delays outweigh any possible benefits of waiting for more research. The analysis also implies that taking action sooner rather than later could lead to significant cost savings. The researchers from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology assessed four sources of uncertainty in limiting the rise in global average temperatures. The first was political uncertainty regarding when a coordinated global climate policy might be achieved. The second was scientific uncertainty over how much the Earth will warm in response to emissions. The third was social uncertainty about future energy demand. And the fourth was technological uncertainty regarding the availability of emissions reduction technologies. The Zurich team compared greenhouse gas emissions and cost in more than 500 scenarios. The results revealed that the timing of global action will have the biggest effect on whether the world meets a given target, such as keeping global temperature rise to less than 2 degrees Celsius above previous industrial levels, meaning 1750. Now, to see if Congress can take some initiative where it has failed since it killed proposed climate legislation back in 2008. Mark your calendars for the first Café Scientifique of 2013. 
Café Size are free public lectures by local scientists with plenty of questions from the audience. Denver's next Café Sci is on January 22nd. It features Tad Pfeffer from Boulder's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. He'll talk about getting sea level predictions right. Boulder's next Café Sci is tonight. It features Monique Le Bourgeois, director of CU Boulder's Sleep and Development Lab. She studies how sleep affects a child's ability to learn. Some kids drop their naps very early on, and they're able to hold it together for the entire day and get all the sleep they need at night. But many kids need naps, you know, until they're four or five. They just can't get enough sleep at night, and they need that nap to, what I say, make sure that their sleep tanks are full. Les Bourgeois speaks tonight at Boulder's Café Scientifique. Her topic is Time for Sleep, Little One, Clues About Sleep in Early Childhood. The talk takes place at Boulder's Outlook Hotel at 828th Street. Refreshments are at 5.30 and the talk starts at 6 o'clock. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Joel Parker. In most of the U.S., it's against the law to smoke marijuana. But thanks to voters in Colorado and Washington State, recreational use of marijuana has been at least partially decriminalized. That change is too recent to analyze how it will affect things like crime and public health. But we have a longer-running experiment in the pot. Colorado is one of 16 states with medical marijuana laws. And a new study by researchers from Oregon, Montana, and the University of Colorado, Denver, indicates that in states with medical marijuana laws, traffic fatalities go down 8 to 11 percent. Mark Anderson is a co-author of this study. He says that it's not clear why there's a reduction in traffic fatalities when a state passes medical marijuana laws, but growers of medical marijuana do seem to increase the overall supply of pot, and this drives down the price of marijuana, which leads to a shift in people's drug of choice. Price falls, consumption goes up. So price of marijuana falls, people start smoking more marijuana and drinking less. As a result, we see fewer alcohol-related traffic fatalities because alcohol consumption has been affected by an increase in marijuana. As for why smoking pot may cause fewer traffic fatalities than drinking alcohol, Anderson says that maybe it's because people who use medical marijuana smoke it mostly at home so they don't drive afterward. Meanwhile, people often drink alcohol at parties or bars, then they drive home. Or maybe it's because drunk drivers are more dangerous than drivers who are stoned. We don't know if it's because less people are on the road drunk or if it's because people that are drunk are more dangerous than people that are high behind the wheel. While driving drunk or stoned is dangerous, Anderson says that overall, traffic fatalities do drop in states with medical marijuana laws. Some policymakers have worried that as marijuana becomes more available, people will drink and smoke pot. But according to University of Colorado Denver economist Ben Crost, it does look like people choose one or the other, and usually not both. For instance, teens tend to use more marijuana, probably because it's illegal to drink alcohol until people are 21. Basically, as soon as you 
get legal access to alcohol, on average, people shift from using marijuana to using alcohol. Some people have found results that there's a big spike in traffic mortality as people turn 21 because they start drinking and then have drunk driving accidents. But in states with medical marijuana, there's a different shift. Marijuana use tends to increase once someone's 18. 18 happens to be the legal age at which teenagers no longer need to ask parents for permission to get a medical marijuana card. Ben Crost says that this kind of behavior might be worth studying along with other relationships between medical marijuana and crime. So on the relationship between illegal versus medical marijuana and crime, there's very little research so far. You know, there's hopefully going to be some interesting findings coming out of this over the next couple of years. These researchers plan to do more studies on topics about medical marijuana and what will happen in Colorado and Washington now that some recreational use has been decriminalized. For more information and extended versions of these interviews, check our website, howonearthradio.org. You're tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Shelley Schlender. Up next, a study released last week is tempting some people to throw out any plans for losing that holiday weight. The study, by scientists at the Centers for Disease Control, was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It compared people's body mass index, or BMI, with when they died. It concludes that you're more likely to live longer if you're pleasingly plump, have love handles, or in some other way are fairly chubby. Some experts are calling this study proof that being heavier is healthier. Others call this the most confusing study of the year. For a closer look at it, here's an analysis from medical doctor and researcher on aging, Ron Rosedale. He begins by saying these findings about BMI are actually not new at all. A study from 2006 had similar results. But Ron Rosedale says that study from six years ago led to better recommendations. Here's Ron Rosedale. The study that's being discussed now in JAMA is not a new study, and it's not new information at all, but has been rehashed by the medical community already very, very extensively. This is a study. It was, it was first published in The Lancet in 2006, and it's entitled Association of Body Weight with Total Mortality and with Cardiovascular Events in Coronary Artery Disease, a Systematic Review of Cohort Studies. In other words, exactly like the current study in question did. The current study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, you're saying, is very similar to this older study that was done by the British journal The Lancet. Both are highly regarded journals. That's correct. The findings, I'll just quote the findings, said we found 40 studies with 250, 152 patients that had a mean follow-up of three to eight years, patients with a low body mass index, had an increased relative risk for total mortality. In other words, they used the same statistical criteria also. If you were skinny three to eight years before the end of this study, you were more likely to die. Correct. And they found that overweight is indicated by a BMI of between 25 and 
29.9, 30 is considered obese, had the lowest risk for total mortality and cardiovascular mortality compared with people with a normal BMI. Obese patients, those with a BMI between 30 and 35, had no increased risk for total mortality. Patients with severe obesity, in other words, a BMI greater than or equal to 35, did not have increased total mortality, but they had the highest risk of cardiovascular mortality. The findings in this study were almost identical to the findings in the current JAMA study. And this other study was in 2006, so it was... Six years ago. But here's the big difference. The interpretation, in other words, their conclusion. This is the author's conclusion right off the bat. And I'll just, again, read that verbatim. The better outcomes for cardiovascular and total mortality seen in the overweight and mildly obese groups could not be explained by adjustment for confounding factors. These findings could be explained by the lack of discriminatory power of body mass index to differentiate between body fat and lean mass. Their conclusion is correct. The current conclusion didn't, didn't say this. It left it to an editorial in JAMA. Some other people have mentioned it. But this was already mentioned by the authors of the 2006 study. Basically, what this shows is not that being fat is protective at all. What it shows is that using body mass index as an index of obesity is faulty. And after 2006 and after this study and other studies similar, there were a number of articles, a number of studies subsequently that talked about BMI not being a valid measurement of obesity and that one should use more valid indicators of health and, and obesity, such as just measuring your waist circumference, or better yet, waist-to-hip ratio. Well, let's look at this a little bit more in terms of what you mean when you say that this 2006 study warned that BMI does not take make a difference between lean body mass and fat mass. Is this the Arnold Schwarzenegger problem? that Arnold Schwarzenegger is so muscly, he weighs a lot for his height, and so he comes across just in terms of the scale as being obese, but really he's full of muscle. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't differentiate between muscle or fat. You know, certain athletes will have a higher BMI than would historically be considered healthy, but it also, importantly, doesn't differentiate between where that fat is. If that fat is subcutaneous pear shape, you know, where women put it on their hips, but it's really subcutaneous fat. It's underneath your skin, but it's in front of your muscle. Right, and not visceral, meaning in your belly. When you say in your belly, it's not the belly fat that you could grab that's under your skin. It's You're talking about the belly fat that would be inside of your body, underneath the muscle, surrounding your body organs. Yes, surrounding the viscera, as you mentioned, your body organs, so surrounding and in particular, uh, permeating the liver. Well, is this the kind of fat that is the man, for instance, who has a barrel-shaped tummy, but if you pat that tummy, it feels kind of strong and hard because there's not so much fat on the outside because most of the fat is on the inside underneath the muscle? That's correct. And we know it's been really shown very, very convincingly that when one has significant visceral fat, especially 
uh, liver fat or so-called fatty liver that it indicates relatively severe disease and is a very powerful risk factor. I wouldn't even say a risk factor, although it's called a risk factor. It's actually uh, a disease itself. And so what it indicates is that your body is failing to understand where to put the fat. So it puts it in essentially all the wrong places, whereas in our historic ancestral history, it was quite important to store extra energy in the form of fat when food was in abundance so that you could call upon that those energy reserves uh, when food was scarce. Well, Ron Rosedale, are you saying then that somebody could have a fairly high percentage of body fat, but if it's stored on the hips or if it's stored in other places on the body where it's above the muscle layer, just below the skin, it's probably not going to be a health problem for that person, or at least not as much of one. That's correct, because it actually indicates that the body knows what it's doing, that there's proper communication. That's where one is supposed to store fat. One is supposed to store fat underneath the skin when you have energy in abundance, and that's a, a, a safe place to store it. It doesn't really do harm there. And really, it's actually a different organ. If you really want to look at it from a physiologic sense, subcutaneous fat uh, is different. We have one word for fat. It's fat. But we know now that there are different types of fat. We know, for instance, there's brown fat, which is so-called thermogenic. It uh, emits a lot of heat. The fat that is in the viscera is a different kind of fat than the fat that is subcutaneous. And the fat that's in the viscera produces a lot more hormones and a lot of inflammatory chemicals. And there's a lot of uh, talk and study, uh, and, and rightly so, about the contribution of chronic inflammation to chronic disease. And a lot of that chronic inflammation uh, is initiated by fat, which is initiated by high levels of a very powerful metabolic hormone called leptin. And we know that when leptin is not being signaled properly, the, the brain then ceases to understand that the body has an appropriate amount of fat and it actually thinks you're too skinny. And then it causes you to be hungry and store more fat for potential times of, of famine and times of need, even though you have a lot of fat. In other words, there's a disconnect then between the body and the brain. But more importantly, we know now that when there is that disconnect between the leptin being produced by fat that's trying to tell your brain how much fat you've got and your brain can't hear it, the more devastating results of this is not just that a person gets fat, but that a person gets fat in, in the wrong places, such as visceral fat that then produces a lot of uh, inflammation. And then you get into this vicious cycle of disease that perpetuates the disease. If visceral fat is the dangerous kind of fat and subcutaneous fat is not, you mentioned that measuring your waist-to-hip ratio is one clue about whether you're in the safe zone or not with your fat. Is there some ballpark for what kind of ratio you should look at between your waist and your hips? Yeah. Again, what's interesting about the current article is that it's not new, that they're still even talking about BMI as a potential marker of obesity, which has been you know, really shown pretty convincingly that it's a very poor marker. So subsequent to the 2006 article and other articles like it that then really kind of poo-pooed BMI as a very valid marker of obesity, and they started using 
waist circumference and waist to hip ratio, there are certain standards that have been set up. And those standards are for men, a ratio of above one is considered into a higher risk of increased visceral fat and therefore risk of disease. For men, that means that if your waist is no larger than your hips, you're probably in a good place. And where exactly should you measure that? Should you measure that at a bikini line or should you measure it above your navel? The largest circumference. Uh-oh. So instead of saying, well, I'm going to put it where my belt fits the best underneath my belly, measure the biggest part of the belly. Measure your biggest part of the belly and then measure the biggest part of your hips. And then for women, above 0.8 the waist should be about 80% of the size of the hips in terms of the size or less. And where should women measure that? Should they measure it above their belly or should they measure it below their belly where their abdomen pooches out the most? I think it should be measured where the abdomen comes out the greatest and, and again, where the hips are the, the largest. So don't use measuring up above or below the navel a certain amount. Just go ahead and admit this is where I'm the biggest and measure there. Yep, that's correct. That's so unfortunate. <laughs> is going to put their waist to hip circumference in a much less benign light than most people would like. That's correct. But the truth uh, is never bad. You have to use the truth, especially when it comes to health. The truth may not ever be bad, but it can be very disconcerting. Well, it can if it is viewed that way, but a different sort of perception view it as causing the freedom then to make appropriate changes. They have to know that there's a problem first before you make a change. Ron Rosedale is an expert on the science of aging. You can listen to an extended version of this interview by going to howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. This show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender, who also is this quarter's executive producer. Additional contributions by Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Jimmy Cliff and Ufabulum. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Joel Parker.